Last time we spoke about Dugout Doug and the battling bastards of Batan, and how they began their defenses of the Abake Malbin line. We saw two attempts to cross Mount Natib and the last American cavalry charge in history. In Malaya, we began to talk about the defense of the Johor area and how some Australian forces got their first taste of combat around Mar. Now they will be getting a second dose under fire. Lastly, we spoke about how the Japanese began the Dutch East Indies operation with the capture of Tarakan and Manado. The defenders of Manado were forced to go on the run as guerrilla fighters and some would last fighting all the way up until August of 1942. Today, we're going to continue all of these stories and set up a new stage for the Dutch East Indies campaign, the further invasions of New Britain and Balakipapan. This episode is The Invasion of New Britain. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can start, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and many more historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you check my personal channel out, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I have videos going all the way back to the Opium Wars of the 1800s until the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Check it out, it'd mean a lot to me. As we mentioned last week, the Japanese had commenced their most important operation to date, the seizure of the Dutch East Indies, and all the vital resources that they held that could keep the Japanese war machine going. They would also be venturing into another new territory, that of Burma. But before we dive into any of these new areas, we still need to continue a few ongoing adventures, like that of the Battling Bastards of Bataan. Last time we spoke about Bataan, the 51st Philippine Division had launched a counterattack, but they were too eager and many of them ran too far ahead of the other units opening up their flanks. Colonel Imai took the opportunity and managed to break open a two-mile hole in the Salian River Valley, part of the Abuke Line. In response to the 51st Division being absolutely destroyed, General MacArthur was forced to send in his last Philippine reserve to try and stop the Japanese advance before it was too late. As the Japanese advanced to the Salient River Valley, the 21st Division managed to rush to the scene and repulse the invaders before they could establish themselves properly. A bit further to the west, another Japanese force, the 65th of General Nara, those less than optimal forces that were supposed to just garrison areas, well, they managed to storm through the Abake line to a place called Abu Abu Valley. The Philippine scouts tried to stop their advance, but the 65th were aided by the Japanese 9th Regiment. Eventually, General Parker's efforts at tossing parts of the 12th, 51st, and 31st Divisions had paid off, after a series of attacks and counterattacks began to take hold of the enemy. Holding off the enemy was one thing, 
Repulsing them was another, however. After observing the conditions of the line, Lieutenant General Sutherland recommended that his troops should withdraw to the Bagak-Orion line, which ran between the two towns of Bagak and Orion. MacArthur would be forced to make that order to pull them back. The withdrawal would also come just in the nick of time, as on the western side, the detachment of Major General Noyaki Kimura had managed to outflank General Wainwright's lines on the western slopes of Mount Natib. Wainwright tried, but failed to break the Japanese road blockade with a tank attack that he personally led. And by January the 21st, the Maubane line was pierced, and Wainwright's 1st Division was quickly being encircled. After this, he and his men were forced to abandon their vehicles and artillery pieces, withdrawing south via the beach roads. The Malbane Line was thus abandoned, and a general retreat began south. Meanwhile, Douglas MacArthur began to send messages to Washington about the defeats and retreats, describing them as all being planned maneuvers. MacArthur said, quote, under the cover of darkness, I broke contact with the enemy, and without a loss of man or an ounce of material, I am now firmly established on my main battle position. The execution of the movement would have done credit to the best troops in the world. End of quote. At around the same time, the 16th Naval District Intelligence Officer, Lieutenant Commander Cheek, sent this message about that very same event. The panic spread to all this regiment, the 53rd, and even to the reserve, 52nd Regiment, a mile in the rear of the front. Machine guns, rifles, ammunition, and equipment were all abandoned. The former were turned on the disorganized 51st Division by the enemy. End of quote. Despite the usual MacArthur tales, Commander Cheek met with a U.S. Army colonel to confirm that 40% of the Philippine Army divisions had been lost through desertion alone. Many had abandoned tens of artillery pieces, scores of machine guns, and thousands of rifles, along with copious amounts of munitions and supplies. For the men retreating south, it was utter chaos. Thousands of soldiers were separated from their units and arrived haphazardly behind the new lines of defense. Luckily, there was little sign of the enemy bombers or fighters, which would have done egregious harm to the troops exposed en masse on all the roads they were fleeing upon. By January the 26th, all of the men were securely positioned behind pillboxes, trenches, and bunkers along the Bagak-Orion line. They resupplied effectively from the rear footpaths through the jungle. The American and Filipino forces were all very aware that they had been driven back into the peninsula that might become their tomb. To just remind everyone, as I continuously do, General MacArthur's insistence to stop the invaders at the beaches had lost so much valuable time, and in an overdue rush to effect Warplan Orange 3, the army had not managed to move all the available ammunition, medical supplies, and food to the Bataan Peninsula. The men were already on half rations, and those witnessing the moment they began this particular retreat described them to look like, quote, The walking dead, unwashed and unshaven for nine days. Their gaunt faces were all blank. End of quote. 
So now the men were in the same situation they had just been in, just a bit further south. They were still on an eastern-western side, separated by Mount Natib. Wainwright would again command the western half, and Parker on the eastern. The troops rested in foxholes and dugouts and thanked God they had survived the intense retreat of the Abakay-Malben lines. Lieutenant Henry Lee of the Philippine Division composed a poem about the withdrawal. It is as follows, quote, Saved for another day, saved for hunger and wounds and heat, for slow exhaustion and grim retreat, for a wasted hope and sure defeat. End of quote. Many of the Japanese were no better off than the Americans. Nara's 65th Summer Brigade, the garrison men, were riddled with over 2,000 casualties at this point. The survivors were exhausted and still shell-shocked by their first taste of battle. So now we have to take our leave of the Philippines. We're going to go back to the equally desperate situation of Malaya. The situation was looking really bad for the defenders. The coastal town of Mar was taken, and the 45th Indian Brigade had been all but annihilated in the process. The remnants of the 45th began a depressing retreat down the coast. The Australians were pushed out of Gamas and were forced to abandon a ton of valuable equipment. The remnants of the 45th and the Australians eventually found their way to regroup at Bakri. There at Bakri, they would establish a defensive perimeter. And because of all of this chaos, this would lead the Japanese to converge at Bakri where almost all of Duncan's officers' staff had been killed by an aerial attack. The 53rd Brigade, consisting of the 5th and 6th Norfolks and the 2nd Cabershires, who, remember, had only just arrived after being at sea for three months and required some time to settle in and be trained for the terrain a bit, well, Percival simply threw them right to the front lines. Percival also ordered the recapture of Mar and thus Duncan pulled together the Garwallis reserves to mount it. The counterattack on Mar was to be a three-pronged advance from Bakri to the Mar up the main road between the towns, from the jungle island and along the coastal roads. Unfortunately for the Garwallis commander, Lieutenant Colonel James Woodridge, he would be killed returning from a dawn reconnaissance patrol. The counterattack failed horribly, most of the Gorwalses' remaining British officers were killed or wounded. The surviving ones seized Bren guns from a ton of frightened sepoys who were trying to hold a position in a rubber estate. And in the disarray, the Gorwalses returned all the way back to Bactri, which was now undergoing artillery and aerial bombardments. The Australian gunners who saw the retreating sepoys called them the Galloping Gorwalses. On January the 18th, General Nishimura of the Imperial Guards Division, those strapping tall lads who wanted very much to prove that they were not chocolate soldiers, well, they began a three-pronged assault on the Allied positions around Bakri, and this in turn would turn into a siege. We already mentioned this part of the story somewhat, but to help remind you, the initial attack on Bakri commenced with a tank vanguard. At 6.45 a.m., shortly after dawn, the attack came spearheaded by nine T-95 tanks, commanded by Captain Shigio Gotanda. 
Gotenda was obviously inspired by Shimada's success at the Slim River, and performed an attack without infantry support in the same dashing way Watanabe had done on the Slim River Road Bridge. Colonel Masakazu Ogaki, the Imperial Guard's division officer in charge of the Mar operation, was not very keen on the idea as he had heard about the devastating anti-tank weapons and specifically how the Molotov cocktails had really done work on the Japanese tanks. There was also the chance the British would use their field artillery, so Ogaki made sure if the infantry were not right beside the tanks, they would at least be not too far behind them. To get to Bakri, Gotanda had to pass through a narrow and fairly high banked cutting with thick vegetation on either side. Waiting for him there were two pounders commanded by Lance Sergeant Clary Thornton. Six tanks approached in a single file, and within a single minute, Thornton's crew hit the first, third, and fourth machine, but they all kept moving onwards. White smoke then began to rise from parts of them, and they did not seem to return any fire. What had been discovered by Harrison at Gemas was that the armor-piercing rounds of two-pounders went right through one side of a T-95 and out the other. The engines might still be going, but what was inside might look like a butcher's shop. Then Thorne's men began firing the high-explosive rounds into the rears of the tanks. The nearest tank did not open fire until it was around 40 yards away, but all six tanks that made up the vanguard were basically immobilized at this point and eventually they would all be destroyed. There was three remaining tanks further back waiting for infantry, and by this point, a Japanese sniper got close enough that he was able to shoot Thornton in his thigh. Thornton struggled against his own men, but eventually was carried off to a field dressing station, where he was awarded an immediate Distinguished Conduct Medal. Percival had been bolstered by this event, and of Bennett's men's impressive work, Thus, Percival decided to try and contain the Mar front. He would send Robertson's battalion and some anti-tank guns to go do the work. The problem was, Percival's intelligence indicated that the Japanese presence in the Mar area was to be pretty small. He did not realize it was actually the entire Imperial Guards division. Even worse, some of them had landed further south down the coast and were preparing to cut the mar Bakri line from the south. Percival had sent all the defenders he could to plug up the gaps across the mar Bakri front. The defenders soon began to run into roadblocks nearly everywhere around the mar, as the Imperial Guards were prodding the roads into Bakri from the south and east. One of the first major victims would be Colonel Robertson, who ran into a roadblock as he tried to get back to the Brigade HQ. He was on the back of a dispatch rider's motorbike when he was shot in the leg and fell at a tremendous speed. He was then picked up by a Bren gun carrier about 500 yards beyond his battalion's eastern perimeter, but he would not survive and died en route. Meanwhile, Duncan, who was still concussed from the aerial bombing attack, relinquished command to Lieutenant Colonel Charles Anderson. Anderson took an account of the remaining forces on hand and was quite dismayed. They had lost a lot of the British officers. Hell, three battalion commanders were dead. Of the forces, he had some 1,000 teenaged Indian boys, 
little over a battalion's worth. Anderson had the highest regard for Indian soldiers. He had served alongside them in East Africa against the Germans, but of this group, he said, quote, I felt extremely disturbed that it was necessary to have to employ such immature and partly trained troops. Most of the troops were, I should say, about 17 years old, and had adolescent fluff on their cheeks. Six months formed, and it takes them four months to teach them how to wear their boots. End of quote. Desperate times had indeed come to desperate measures. Some of Anderson's Australian forces made a counterattack west of Bakri on some of the Japanese who had inserted themselves between two Australian battalions. They outflanked them and managed to trap 200 Japanese between two companies. Platoon commander Patrick Reynolds said, quote, the Japs literally ran around in circles. It all went off as we'd been taught to expect. The boys were in great heart about it all. Even so, Reynolds also had some more howering words to say about the event in regards to how the enemy seemed to not give up very easily, and he had this to say. The section on my right was again pinned down by automatic fire, lying amongst a heap of about 15 apparently dead Japs. I was signaling to another section when suddenly one of the corpses came to life, holding a grenade in his right hand and raising himself from the ground with his left. I shot at him. The grenade exploded simultaneously and half his head was blown off. Two pieces of the grenade hit me, one under the right arm and the other on the side of my head. As I fell, I called out to Sergeant Small to push home the attack. We had practiced this type of movement dozens of times in training. Then only a few yards away, Reynolds noticed another grievously wounded member of the Imperial Guards Division, and he had this to say. I saw him pushing his rifle laboriously towards me, so I picked up my pistol and with my left hand took careful aim and I pulled the trigger for all my worth. It just wouldn't fire. I can remember feeling extremely annoyed by this. Luckily, my Batman saw the Jap up to his tricks and shot him. End of quote. For the Australians, all these rumors they heard about the Japanese being fanatics seemed to be true. Indeed, here a sergeant named Desmond Mokali was searching the body of a fallen Japanese sergeant when suddenly the dead man jumped up with a hand grenade. Desmond grabbed the grenade hand to stop him from pulling the pin, but the Japanese sergeant smashed him over the head with it and began to punch him. The Japanese sergeant was eventually bayoneted by an aiding soldier. Another private named Bluey Watkins had laid down his .303 rifle to search some Japanese bodies when one of those bodies grabbed the rifle and almost shot him. What was becoming the norm, unfortunately, 
was that taking any Japanese alive seemed to be too risky. Private Charles Warden of Private B Company stated, quote, From the first engagement, we learnt not to trust their wounded. End of quote. Private Charles Warden had learnt this outside Bakery, five months short of his 17th birthday. In the end, they killed 140 of the 200 trapped or so Japanese. They had lost about 10 men dead, with 15 wounded. This moment, and the previous destruction of the tanks, were to be the Australian's high mark. By the dawn of January the 20th, Anderson was ordered to pull out of Bakri towards Yongpeng to save what was left of the 45th Brigade. The Imperial Guards Division were putting up so many roadblocks that they were almost surrounded at this point. To help with the retreat, a single company of the 19th Indians Division held off the Japanese as the rest made their way to Parrot Sulong. That company, in turn, was almost cut off from the Allied retreat and almost completely annihilated. The rest of West Force were soon cut off by the Japanese, who had managed to establish more and more roadblocks. At the sign of the first roadblock, Anderson told his Australian men to bayonet charge while singing Waltzing Matilda. Anderson personally led the forces and recalled, quote, Telling people to move here and fire there, which helped a lot to relieve the strain. End of quote. As the men moved on, they said that the South African big game hunter was something of a comic book hero come to life. By the time they got close to Parrot Sulong, Duncan, who was still recovering from his concussion, had been commanding a rearguard and led personally a bayonet charge of chats to retrieve some lost vehicles. Anderson said of Duncan, quote, A very able and gallant officer. End of quote. Duncan was killed during that charge. The defenders had fought tooth and nail to get this far, and by January the 21st, they had approached Parrot Sulong's bridge, which was firmly in the hands of the Japanese. It seemed the Japanese force had rushed ahead to block their way to the bridge. Anderson's forces fought tenaciously to try and take the bridge. Then behind them came Japanese tanks and artillery. The Imperial Guards Division had caught up. While some fought for the bridge and the front, others waited for the cover of darkness and went back to hit the Japanese tanks with Molotov cocktails and grenades. The situation was dire, and at night the Japanese would often try to locate hiding defenders by calling out, Where are you, Joe? Or, Tomorrow you die. On January the 21st, two RAF ferry albacores and three Brewster Buffalo escorts arrived from Singapore to drop supplies on the defenders. Once the supplies were dropped, they then turned to attack the Japanese, holding the far end of the bridge. Anderson watched, hoping the bombs would take out some machine gun positions around the bridge, but for some reason, they flew west towards Mar, and then south, bombing and strafing the long columns of Japanese traffic that was crawling down the roads towards Batu Pahat. When the Australians ran to pick up the canned goods in the supply drop, they found that they were all canned beetroot, which disappointed them, as they really wanted beef. By January the 22nd, Anderson received reports from all points that his triangular perimeter was becoming impossible to hold. He decided to make one last attempt at taking the bridge, 
and to break free. The Japanese had set up three sets of barricades on the bridge using sandbags, 40-gallon oil drums, and logs. The barricades were covered by heavy machine guns on some high ground behind the bridge. The bridge was around 20 feet wide. Around 30 Australians stormed the bridge while at least another 100 men gave cover fire from wrecked houses on the other side. The Australians managed to get past the first barricade by tossing grenades frantically ahead of themselves. They eventually reached the third barricade as the sandbags were blown apart by Japanese machine gun fire. Two men climbed the third barricade to be shot to pieces. Now with only five Australians left alive, they were forced to crawl back. Anderson ordered an end to the sacrifice of some of his bravest and best men. It seemed to be useless. Anderson had to make a terrible choice. They would have to abandon their badly wounded, blow up the remaining field guns, and try to break away in parts through the jungles and swamps to get to Yangpeng, which was around 12 miles away. All the wounded capable of walking would go with them, but this still meant that 150 men were left behind. It was not an outrageous concept to leave wounded behind and allow the enemy to take them. For the Western armies, that is. During the North African campaigns, uh, the desert battles, there was many occasions where British, German, and Italian medics found themselves working alongside each other in field aid stations that had changed hands so many times during a single day. Although Japanese atrocities against their fellow Asians in China, for example, were well known, the recent fate of the defenders, such as those who were wounded and found at Slim River, that was not so well known to Anderson's forces. To Anderson's forces, it would seem the wounded would probably receive good treatment, be respectful. Hell, at Gamas, the Japanese had allowed Australian ambulances to go by unmolested. The Japanese were slow at first to close in on the Australian positions. They had contended themselves with sniping, motoring, and using patrols to probe the enemy's defense. By 2.30pm, wounded Lieutenant Hackney and Tibbets lay under a wrecked utility truck supporting the rearguard with a Bren gun until their ammunition had run out. They both awaited the Japanese approach and thought to themselves, quote, Awash being an other than blood-stained, torn, filthy clothes, a bed and sleep, now that would be great. End of quote. Then from the west came the first of the Imperial Guards Division. They began to bayonet and shoot all those incapable of moving away from the vehicles and crossing a small bridge which spanned the deep drainage ditch on the right side of the road. Even men doing their utmost to crawl were not spared, but instead clubbed over the head with rifle butts or bayoneted. It soon became clear to Hackney that many of their tormentors took malicious delight in prodding or kicking obvious wounds. For those wounded who got across, the prisoners were assembled before some low buildings, the public work department, bungalow, and some garages. They sat naked in their boots in a circle as the Japanese searched them all for weapons or maps. All requests for medical attention or water were refused. Some Imperial Guards set up a corpse against a truck as a kind of macabre billboard. 
Many of the passing troops in the truck or on bicycles stopped to break their march south for some fun with the wounded defenders. Hackney was quite close to the roads and said of this moment, quote, The wound in my back attracted the attention of many who, whenever possible, took a delight in kicking and belting the place. End of quote. The Japanese did not contain their hatred for whites alone. An Indian with half his hand blown off and bleeding profusely from a wound in his thigh was beaten into insensibility. Hackney saw the Indian man eventually get up to be subjugated to more frenzied bouts of kicks as he fell groaning, and a jabbering Japanese soldier then was to do, quote, then thrust the bayonet into him time and time again, pushing him into the drainage ditch. The Indian clung to life, but when his head surfaced and he gasped for air, he was simply shot. End of quote. Ironically, while that was happening, not very far away at Mar, Major Fujiwara, alongside a propaganda team, were addressing Indian prisoners about the benefits of Japan's greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. It was an ongoing theme throughout the Pacific War that while Japanese officers were trying to initiate this Japanese greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere idea, meanwhile, most of the soldiers were simply raping and brutalizing everyone they came across from whatever nation it didn't matter. Kind of defeats the whole purpose of the program, doesn't it? The wounded prisoners were then crammed into sheds, and Hackney said of this moment, quote, A stinking, scrambling hellhole, full of tortured, groaning, delirious, wounded soldiers. End of quote. Lieutenant General Takuma Nishimura showed up and issued an order to dispose of the wounded, in an act of cruelty, the shed doors were opened up and captives came out begging for water and medical treatment. Before them, to their surprise, were guards holding water canteens and cigarettes. What was also there, however, were Japanese war correspondents who began to take pictures of the prisoners as they reached out for the water and cigarettes. Once the correspondents had taken their pictures and left, the water was promptly poured out cigarettes pocketed, and the prisoners were beaten back into the sheds. There would be a few survivors of the mass execution that would take place. Most of the Australians were roped together like chain gangs and shot. Some Japanese officers took out their katanas and used them on the Indians. The Japanese also poured petrol over many and set them alight on fire. Afterwards, in the words of Russell Brandon, quote, After being incinerated or systematically run over back and forth by Japanese trucks, they died. End of quote. Lance Haveldar Benedict was not tied up very well, and he was being escorted to the bank of a river by three guards, and he managed to knock the rifle out of the hands of his executioner, as he dove into the water and swam away as the Japanese shot wildly at him. Benedict found two more men, one with a gashing wound on his neck where a katana had sliced through. The other man was Hackney, 
He had been bayoneted, and he simply played dead. As he laid there pretending, he heard many men being burnt alive. Hackney would find two other survivors, Sergeant Ron Croft and another Australian private, both reeked of petrol, but they had survived by running into the jungles. This event is known as the Paratsulong Massacre. Yamashita would later state that had he been there instead of Nushimura, he wouldn't have not allowed for such things to happen. Nushimura would later be in charge of occupational forces in Singapore, and allegedly oversaw another massacre called the Suk Ching Massacre. He would receive a life sentence after the war, but only served four years and was returned to Japan. But before he got to Japan, the Australian government grabbed him and put him under a military court where he was convicted and executed on June the 11th of 1951. The Battle of Mar was over. What remained of West Force was now preparing their new positions as they continued their retreat back to Singapore. We are now going to have to shift to a new theater of operations, that of Burma. When Japan opened up the gambits by going to war with the West, it had three primary targets. Pearl Harbor, Malaya, which included Singapore, of course, and the Philippines. They needed to destroy the Anglo-American military and naval resources in these three locations so they would be able to occupy the resource-rich areas of the Dutch East Indies. Burma was an important secondary target of the Japanese expansion, but why? Although the invasion of Burma was never central to Japan's East Asia strategy, it served a number of subsidiary purposes. First, the occupation of Burma would protect the Singapore-Malay flank of the new Asian Empire. Second, as the idea of a Japanese empire became the dominant credo, the idea of liberating another Asian colony became motivating, if not justified in its own right. There were those who assumed the Burmese were agitated for their independence, and they would be particularly receptive to help overthrow their colonial masters. Burma's Prime Minister, Yu Pu, expressed the opinion they should stick to the British. But there were ultra-nationalists like Yu Ma and Bogyok Aung San who saw the war with Japan as an opportunity for immediate independence. Yet, number three, by far the most important reason for Japan's move into Burma was to win control of the Rangoon-Kunming supply route and thus prevent supplies from reaching Chiang Kai-shek. Remember, with the fall of Hong Kong, the Burma Road had become the main supply route to Chongqing. It's hard to think about, but despite the war on the west going on, 1.35 million of the 1.7 million that made up the Japanese army were located in China and along the Manchurian border with the Soviets. The importance of Burma to the Japanese was matched by the determination of Britain to hold it. As Lord Allenbrook, the British Army Chief of Staff said in December 17th of 1941, quote, Personally, I do feel there is not much hope of saving Singapore, but feel that we ought to try and make certain of Burma. End of quote. The Burma campaign was under the command of General Shojiro Aida. He was like General Yamashita, a graduate of the Army Staff College. 
He graduated 27th in his class of 1916, a year before Yamashita. But unlike Yamashita, Aida was composed and not a flamboyant officer. He pursued a much quieter and much more conventional military career. Ba Ma, who would collaborate with the Japanese, said of Aida, quote, Ba Ma found him to be a unique type of Japanese soldier, human, fatherly, and very understanding, a militarist on the surface, but not altogether so deeper down. At least he always tried to see things your way, too, which was something that made him different from the other militarists. The general was a samurai in his utmost mystical devotion to his emperor, his warrior caste and code, and his country. But this very devotion, which consumed him, made him understand the devotion of others to their own gods. End of quote. Aida commanded the 15th Army, newly formed for the invasion of Burma, comprising of the 33rd and 55th Divisions of the IJA. Now, going all the way back when this war kicked off, the 143rd Regiment of the 55th Division accomplished the first attacks against British Burma during the invasion of Thailand. When the Japanese reached the Khre River, sitting along the border of Thailand, they quickly went to work capturing Victoria Point on December the 14th. Sir Thomas Jacob Hutton was the unfortunate man in command of the Burma Army during the initial onslaught. He was given command just before the hostilities broke out and was a subordinate to the newly established Abda Command in which Waffle was commander-in-chief. Hutton began the hostilities by ordering his subordinates to take the fight as close as possible to the border. Hutton wanted to establish some buffer space to allow reinforcements to get to the scene. The sad result, however, would see many ill-equipped and badly trained Burmese and Indian forces rushing to the border. Like we have seen in previous episodes, a key part of the strategy was to delay the enemy as much as possible. And to do so, Hutton ordered many bridges that led into Burma from Thailand to be destroyed. Despite the valiant efforts at the border, places like southern Tenasarim would eventually get probed by Japanese forces. In the meantime, by December the 22nd, Deputy Commander of ABDA, General George Howard Brett for the Americans and Wavell for the British, arrived in Chongqing to speak to Chiang Kai-shek. Washington had learnt the hard way that it was one thing to form large overall plans and quite another to break them down into working details that meant everything in a war. Where were they to begin? Hong Kong was practically lost at the offset of the war, and the position of Singapore and the Philippines looked terribly shaky. And there was a rather ticklish question overbearing all discussion. Many members of the conference, particularly the British, refused to see Chongqing as a focal point of their defense. They did not believe Chiang Kai-shek had any real resources on hand, and to give him a powerful voice would just allocate their pool of men and materials to him for a waste. The Americans urged that China's geographical position gave her importance for the defense. Churchill, who was in Washington at this time, actively combated the idea of giving any voice to China, stating, quote, 
extraordinary significance of China in American minds is strangely out of proportion. I said I would, of course, always be helpful and polite to the Chinese, whom I admired and liked as a race and pitied for their endless misgovernment. But that Roosevelt must not expect me to adopt what I felt was a wholly unreal standard of values. End of quote. Roosevelt was able to smooth things over by sending word to Chongqing that Australia, Britain, Holland, and America would have supreme command over their forces in the Southwest Pacific Theater, with Wavell and Chang ought to act as Wavell's opposite number and commander in the China Theater, which would include Siam and Indochina. Chiang Kai-shek accepted the compromise and requested that an American be appointed to be chief of the joint staff under him, and thus Joseph Warren Stilwell was sent to Chongqing. Stilwell was to oversee the U.S. defense aid for China, and under Chiang Kai-shek, he was to command all U.S. forces in China and any Chinese forces that might be assigned to him. Of grave importance was his task to maintain the Burma Road, Shortly before he got his appointment on January the 1st, Stilwell observed, quote, Trouble with unified command in the Far East. Not as between British and ourselves, but among the British. The British Navy sits disdainly aloof. Nobody can command them. It just isn't done. The arrogant Royal Air Force will have none of it. Chiang Kai-shek is acting up as well. Ho Ying-ching, and he thinks that the U.S. Air Force should come right over and protect them. Also, that they should get everything they ask for. China peeved over British grab of Tulsa cargo for protection of Rangoon. Chiang Kai-shek ready to send 100,000 men into Burma. But Wavell refused the help. End of quote. We are going to get a chance in many later episodes to talk all about the colorful story between Vinegar Joe and his relationship to Chiang Kai-shek, who he nicknamed Peanut. It's going to be very entertaining, I assure you. Now, at the offset of the war, the British could count on the 46th and the 16th Indian Brigades and the 1st Burma Division for the defense of Burma, and they could really use some extra help, to say the least. The British plan consisted on keeping the Japanese forces as far away as possible from the port of Rangoon. Rangoon was the vital place where most aid flowed towards the Burma Road. Hooten had sent the 2nd Burmese Brigade and the 46th Indian Brigade to Tenasserim, with their HQ being set up in the city of Moulmain. Tenasserim would prove to be indefensible, however, and local commanders argued they should simply retreat behind the Sitang River to establish a better defense. To this, Hooten strongly opposed. Well, that would prove to be a very fatal mistake, as Aida would open up his attacks on December the 22nd against Tenasarim. The Japanese 55th Division was based out of the now-friendly city of Bangkok, led by Lieutenant General Takeichi, and they crossed the frontier aimed at capturing Moulmain. They would advance on Moulmain by January the 20th, heading from Raheng towards the Kawakerek Pass. Back on January the 18th, the 143rd Regiment managed to overcome the Tenasarim Range. A jungle covered steeply, and they attacked the 6th and 3rd Burmese rifles there. 
The Japanese eventually pushed back the Burmese rifles and captured Mergi, where the Burmese nationalists proclaimed the creation of the Burma Independence Army. Now the Japanese had a collaborationist force led by Major Generals Aung San and Suzuki Keiji. On January the 22nd, the 16th Indian Brigade clashed with the 55th IGA Division at the Kawakarek Pass. The defenders fought tenaciously, but they were outflanked and had to pull back after two days of resistance. At this point, on January the 24th, Stilwell wrote to the War Department in Washington, quote, The British have one brigade east of Rangoon and one more on the way. That's what they thought was sufficient to hold all of Burma. And the Supreme Commander, Wavel, refused Chiang Kai-shek's offer of two corps. He didn't want the 30 Chinese in Burma. The Burmese hate the Chinese and the British. Maybe they are pretty right. End of quote. Between January the 23rd to the 29th, the Japanese would establish air superiority over Tenasserim and even Rangoon. On the night of January the 30th, the main attack on Moulmain commenced and the Japanese took on the 2nd Burmese Brigade south and east of the city. One of the local commanders, Major General Jackie Smith, who was the key actor who complained they should hold out behind the Sitang River rather than Tenasserim, which he and his colleagues deemed indefensible. Well, they were forced to pull out and retreat to Rangoon by January the 31st. The way to Rangoon was wide open, and the Abda command was proving itself completely incompetent, if not mostly because of the British. Another bright and optimistic theater for the Allies. But now we're going to have to shift our attention to the Pacific once more. Now since the start of the war, one place the Japanese knew was a huge threat was that of the island of New Britain. From such a place could harm come to one of Japan's most important naval bases in the Pacific, on the Truk Atoll. Thus, in response, Operation R was formed. It was to be an invasion of Rabaul in New Britain and Kaving in New Ireland. Earmarked to carry it out was the South Seas detachment of General Hori after the occupation of Guam was finished with. He would be supported by the 4th Fleet of Admiral Inoue, and already on January the 4th, the Japanese aircraft carriers commenced by bombarding Rabaul with aerial bombers to soften it up. Admiral Nimitz had been receiving radio intelligence that the enemy was planning a Koryaku Butai, or occupation force most likely aimed at Rabaul. If the Japanese fleet was moving towards Rabaul, well then there was no danger to the U.S. carrier task forces in the Central Pacific who could take a swipe at the Marshall Islands. But this was all to be covered in another episode. En route to Rabaul was the 4th Fleet, which had the carriers Akagi and Kaga, holding a hundred aircraft set to make for a very bad day for the poor souls on that island. And on that said island of Rabaul was the Australian garrison of 1,400 men, mainly from the 23rd Brigade, commanded by Colonel John Scallon. Over at Kaving was a commando unit of just 130 men. In the opening attacks, the 100 Japanese aircraft attacked Rabaul in waves. The Royal Australian Air Force airfield near Rabaul was able to toss just eight wearaways at them. These being aircraft pretty much designed as training planes, they also had four Hudsons. 
Three wear arrays were shot down, two crash landed, and one was damaged pretty badly. Six Australian pilots were killed, with five wounded. Of the Japanese, a single bomber was shot down by anti-aircraft fire. The raid was so intense, the coastal artillery had all been destroyed, and the Australian soldiers had to withdraw further into Rabaul. The following day, a PBY Catalina did some reconnaissance and saw that the Aegean fleet near Keving was incoming. The crew of the PBY were able to send word before they were shot down themselves. Now, while all of this is happening, the invasion of Borneo and Celebes was still continuing. Mop-up operations were ongoing on Tarakan and Manadu, and now the Japanese 16th Army would make an assault on Balakipapin and Kendari. The Sakaguchi Detachment left Tarakan on January the 21st, to make a landing near the Wayne River in front of Balakimpapin. The plan was to advance deep into the rear of the city to perform a surprise attack. The Dutch had a garrison at Balakimpapin numbering 1,100 men under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Cornelius van der Hogenband. As was done in other oil-rich territories, when word came of the impending Japanese attack, the Dutch ordered the destruction of their oil installations in Balakipapin. On January the 20th, a PBY Catalina sighted the enemy invasion force inbound for Balakipapin and got word to Admiral Hart, who quickly sent four old four-piper destroyers to foil the landing. Hart was to give the Allies their only major success of the Dutch East Indies campaign. These four pipers were the USS Paul Jones, Parrot, Pope and John D. Ford, led by Commander Paul Tabot. Under the cover of darkness, they advanced unnoticed into the middle of the IGN landing convoys. The fires of the oil facilities made for a perfect backlight as the destroyers fired their torpedoes. They managed to sink three transports and a torpedo boat. The attack would have been much more devastating if they were not using the defective American Mark 15 torpedoes that tended to run far too deep. Many of the torpedoes missed their targets, and it's almost certain quite a few failed to explode. The Dutch also did their part, and sent three waves of Dutch Martin B-10 bombers, and over 19 of them were escorted by 12 Brewster Buffaloes. While the first two waves went miserably, the third managed to sink the transport ship Nanamaru, injure the Kawakaze, and the Tatsugumi Maru all at the cost of a single Martin. Unfortunately, the landing crafts had already disembarked and the Japanese casualties were quite light. Japanese air power provided by the 23rd Air Flotilla based in Davo came to clear the skies of the Dutch fighters, which only took a few days. Meanwhile, Japanese forces made their way up the Wayne River and by the evening of January the 25th, they reached the rear of Balakapapan. The Dutch garrison was taken by complete surprise, and by midday, Balakapatman was captured. The Japanese had found that only minor damage was done to the valuable oil fields. Huguban's men had failed to destroy them completely. The forces of Sakaguchi would be marked with atrocities here. After seeing the destruction of the oil fields back in Tarakan, Sakaguchi had become determined that the same thing was not going to happen at Balakapatman. Two Dutch officers were sent as emissaries to warn Lieutenant Colonel Hugenband that all Dutch soldiers and civilians would be rounded up and shot if the oil fields were further damaged. That warning was ignored, 
and in spite of the minor damage on the oil fields, Sakaguchi's men rounded up 78 Dutch soldiers and civilians, including eight patients from a hospital, and they were all taken to the old clandestine fortress on a beach. There, two victims were beheaded, while the rest, including doctors and priests, were driven into the sea and shot. The native population were forced to watch all of this. Mop-up operations began the next day against the town of Samarinda. While the Kume detachment led by Lieutenant Colonel Motozo Kume seized the oil fields at Sanga Sanga. Simultaneously, Kendari on the east coast of Celebs was quickly overrun by January the 24th, and its airfield was made available to the 21st Air Flotilla. The Dutch forces were forced to retreat further inland to Tawanga on the Konawaha River, and from there they would execute guerrilla warfare. With the fall of Balakapapan and Kendari, the Japanese had achieved their next step in the plan, getting slowly but surely closer to the island of Java. Back on January the 22nd, 400 Japanese Marines were tasked with taking Kaving in New Ireland. They took the main town of Kaving without opposition. However, when they went for the airfield, they met some very angry Australian commandos. Despite a fierce struggle, the commandos were forced to retreat to the Sook River, and like their counterparts on Rabaul, they would have to begin guerrilla warfare operations. Now Rabaul was being attacked from multiple points, with continuous landings on the beaches and the neighboring islands were also being swept. Despite the Australians' efforts to destroy the military facilities as best they could, everything was being repaired with ease, and now the Japanese had Rabaul as a base of operation in the New Guinea region. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kingston Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kingston Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. The victories at Bataan, Mar, Balakipapan, Rabal, Kendari, and Tenasarim continued the triumphant trend that the Japanese had been enjoying. It seemed the Japanese were unstoppable, and indeed, many Allied soldiers began to describe them as something like jungle super soldiers. Yet, as we will see later on in this war, with so many victories also comes something known as victory disease. Regardless, next week we will continue our story of the battling bastards of Bataan, the Dutch East Indies, and the fall of Malaya.